Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. My guest today is a world champion. She's a multi-world champion, in fact, having played her part in achieving world championship status in Formula One no less than three times. She's not a driver, nor a team principal, but if you think those are the only people who can claim to be world champion in motorsport, then you grossly underestimate the immense dedication and team spirit that is required from every single person in each squad. Knowing my guest, she will hate the fact that I chose to introduce her this way, but I saw firsthand how hard she worked over the years and the amazing things she's achieved while in motorsport and the amazing things she's achieved since leaving motorsport. She carries her immense passion in everything that she does and I can't wait for you to get to know her over the next hour or so. My guest today is my champion, Rachel Leenan. Rachel Leenan, thank you very much for coming and chat to me. It's really, really nice to see you because I haven't spoken to you in over a year, which is ridiculous. And the main reason for that is because you're on the other side of the world and you're on the other side of motorsport because you've left it. But before we get on to all of that, I have to start with the question that I ask absolutely everyone, if you don't mind, which is, tell me, Rachel, when and where did your racing life actually begin? Well, um, I actually grew up around motorsport. My dad was an engineer in IndyCar and in Formula One. So racing was pretty much always a part of my life. We would watch the races on Sunday, just trying to find him on TV. Um, Sometimes on Saturdays, he would take us into the drawing office and like he would tape up um, papers next to him on the drafting board. So he would be drawing the cars and he would hand us the highlighters and we would get to just um, draw race cars as well. We actually lived in England and in Italy when I was younger while he was doing that. And then we eventually moved back to California. And at that point, my brother started go-karting. So I spent a lot of time at the go-kart track with him and just kind of decided that motorsport was a natural fit. There were a lot of opportunities and things that really suited my personality type and skill set. So decided as soon as I'd finished university, move back to Europe and figure out how I could get a job in racing. And we should explain, and you've touched on it, but your your accent gives it away. You're not from Europe. You are from America. And your dad worked in Formula One for many, many years. And he came over to pursue motorsport as well. How did it all start? Yes. Yeah, so um, we are from California. 
In fact, we come from a long line of farmers here in Ventura County in California. My dad got his start because my great-grandfather used to build or design and build farm machinery. So dad would tinker around the shop and started racing soapbox derby, went to university, studied mechanical design engineering, and again decided he wanted to work in racing, showed up at um, Dan Gurney's race shop when he was in college and said, I'm here to work for you. I'll sweep the floor. I'll do whatever. And um, Dan gave him a job and he got into racing that way. And then he was doing design work and cross paths with John Barnard, who was another um, well-respected designer. So dad designed cars that um, have won the Indy 500 and then eventually was poached to go work for McLaren. So when I was three, we moved over to England and um, yeah, lived there for nine, well, nine years with a year out, year and a half out in Italy in the middle. And having grown up with motorsport being such a part of your family, were you always a fan of it or was it actually what dad does and it was what was dragging you around the world? But, you know, how did you feel about it as a kid? That's a, an interesting question and I don't know that I've ever really thought about it. I wouldn't say that I'm a massive fan. Uh, I would never buy a ticket to go to a race to watch it. I do really enjoy, even now, um, tuning in on Sunday and watching the race, mostly to see my friends on TV. It was just so much part of our life and it shaped growing up, it shaped who we were. And because dad was very successful in his career, it gave us the inspiration but both my brother and me that to chase success, to be competitive and to always strive to be the best that we could be. Um, having seen that demonstrated for us from a very young age. Have you got an earliest memory? Do you, is there a point where you remember acutely that motorsport was in your life? I, I have a few. I remember going into the drawing office in Ferrari <clears throat> on a Saturday um, and, and sitting at the drafting board. And I remember clearly, I was seven at the time, what the, the drawing office looked like. And I remember also going into McLaren's shop on Boundary Road, way before the MTC. And like the trophies were just kind of surrounding this blueprint machine and the smell was really strong. Um, but I think probably there's one moment where I realized that Formula One was a big deal. And um, my dad was technical director at Benetton for a little while, and he never took us to a race ever until he was a allowed or felt comfortable to bring us to the Sunday of the British Grand Prix. And we were in a grandstand somewhere, and my mom made us all dress up and be very presentable looking and we had a picnic and everything. And after the race, dad came to find us. And I remember being stopped, our family being stopped by a Japanese journalist um, and a photographer. And they wanted to take a picture of dad and our family. And at that point, I was a little bit like, oh, okay, I guess this is kind of a big deal. But the moment that I realized that there was no other job for me than working in motorsport was actually at Indianapolis at the motor speedway there. I was in university about an hour south of the racetrack and was invited. To, well, 
I was volunteering in the med- er, in the press office, helping do credentials and stuff for the track. And the wife of one of my dad's really good friends was the commercial director at um, Jaguar Racing at the time. And she said on a Friday night, come on into the paddock, I'll show you around and I'll talk you through what a marketing department looks like. And it was shortly after September 11th. So uh, all of the cars were running black engine covers. And I remember that feeling of walking into the paddock and getting the tour of the garage, walking out and looking at the front straight at the motor speedway, the sun sort of setting and cars firing up, up and down, and just this incredible atmosphere of excitement and anticipation of the weekend to come. And um, thinking, okay, I have to work here. This, I have to find out, find a way so that this is where I come to do my job. I had a similar moment way, way back as well. Mine was at the British Grand Prix and I was I was there for the first time and, and I'd set myself a goal I was like okay if I see Michael Schumacher somewhere if I you know at the time he was the one that I was like okay, he's the he's the proper interesting driver he's really good at what he does and if, if I see him then that's my sign you know I really like this environment I think it'd be pretty cool but I'm not sure if I'm going to fit in I don't know anyone there how am I going to get there but if I see the guy I'm going to take that as a sign and I was on the inside area of Silverstone. Don't ask me what year. I have no idea. Way too long ago. And I'm standing uh, by, you know, by some meshing. And um, I know that the driver parade has just finished and it's our best moment to try and catch seeing the drivers, you know, just get a few photos or something like that. And um, Michael Schumacher walked right up to me because his scooter was parked in front of me, just on the other side of the meshing. So right up to me eye contact hello get on the scooter and go and I was like, oh damn I asked for a sign <laughs> well there you go now and I then, have to do this <laughs> the rest is history it's funny isn't it how actually you can pinpoint the one moment where you were like no this is I'm going to pursue this yeah. actually is it fair to say despite your environment and how you grew up in that moment do you feel like you chose motorsport or was it already trying to choose you um, I would say absolutely it was a conscious choice that I chose motorsport. Um, I am very different to everyone else in my family, as in that I very much do words. Um, I took my degree in languages. I studied literature. I'm pretty proficient at writing. Everyone else in my family does numbers. My dad's a mechanical design engineer. My mother studied statistics and tracked missiles for the government. Um, my brother is very good on the engineering um, and technical side of things. So it was part of kind of proving myself a little bit to my family that despite not being technical and math oriented, I could be successful and I could be successful in motorsport. So I picked a super difficult environment to prove myself in. Part of it, I'm sure, was proving to my dad that despite being a girl and despite not doing math and engineering, that I could make motorsport a successful career for myself. So we left you in Indianapolis making that decision, kind of swearing to yourself you were going for it. And you mentioned moving to Europe. What, what happened next? What was the next step? So um, our family friend, uh, Jude LaFleming, was starting her own agency with a couple of other colleagues um, from 
Jagger doing business development. So she was working in America's Cup Sailing and also with the Subaru Rally Team. And she was starting right as I was graduating university. So I wrote to her and I said, Jude, please let me come work for you. I will come and do six months for free. If you think I'm worth it and it's been a good investment, then you can hire and pay me after that. But please take a shot on me. So she did. And she was generous enough to say, well, I'm not having you come work for free. I will actually pay you as well. So I moved, um, graduated in May and moved to England in June. Worked for her for a year and a half. And that was incredible. Just understanding how much went into creating a deal, creating attractive partnership opportunities and propositions in other sports beyond Formula One. Then my brother came over and he was racing um, in England as well. And through his team boss, I met Zach Brown, who was just starting JMI uh, in Europe. And I was actually the first person he hired to work in his UK office. So joined just as Johnny Walker was being launched with McLaren. So that was quite an awesome weekend. Uh, first race that I ever formally worked. We had the car ran with West on the Friday, ran with nothing on the Saturday. And then we were there to activate the Johnny Walker logo going on the car on the Sunday. So worked um, for JMI for three years. Did you say it was three years? I can't remember. Four years you did. <laughs> Four years. So got a chance to work um, agency side with a lot of different brands, Johnny Walker, Hilton, LG. Then the office moved to London and I had just bought a house in Oxfordshire and did not think that that was going to be a good move for me to be commuting into London every day. So decided to take it a year off or freelance a little bit. So did some work for Alfa Romeo and um, did a couple of IndyCar races and then got put forward for a freelance opportunity at Mercedes running their paddock club hospitality at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. So last race of the season and never looked back, then stayed with the team for the rest of my uh, F1 career. Where you help them to several world championships. Single-handedly, I would know. <laughs> I was there at a very exciting time. We went from being a very small and scrappy team to fighting for the resources that it took to do things properly. So it was the, a weird dichotomy of desperately wanting to do everything to the highest standard with zero budget to demonstrating we could do it and then getting some more budget put behind it, doing even more with small budgets and growing partnerships as well. So having partners sign on at a very small level and growing them 15 fold um, to become pretty significant partners of the team through creating experiences, assets, I mean, at one point we had guests signing the rear wing of the car before it went out to the grid, being incredibly creative. Yeah, so it was a fantastic time. And then being able to share in the success of the team as I was there for three of the world championship wins. 
And just to be clear to anybody's listening, because obviously I know, but what was your actual role, your actual job title at Mercedes? Well, when I first started, I was doing partner management as well as Paddock Club because we all we were all partner managers and then had sub roles as well. So mine was hospitality. Um, a couple of other colleagues, one was doing show cars, one did merchandise and team kit. And then I eventually transitioned into purely events and hospitality. And when I left, I was I finally was developing a team. So for the first five years, it was just me on my own. Um, And then I had one colleague come and join me for that final season. But yeah, I was responsible for all of the events and hospitality that was delivered both at track and at the factory and then random PR days or track days or other things that took place away from the track of the factory. I mean, I'd love to ask you what was the most random thing that you got involved. I've got a feeling I've probably heard the stories before and we might not be able to say everything. Well, my most random day was Sunday before the Monaco Grand Prix and Monster Energy were title partners of the Le Mans MotoGP race. And they love to do sort of crossover swaps with their athletes and things like that. So... I took Lewis to Le Mans in the middle of crazy bike fans, muddy fields, you know, smoke cannons going off with Monster. And so we had a great day there. I think Lewis may have even presented the trophy on the podium to the winning rider. And then we had to quickly helicopter down to Cannes where um, he had to walk the red carpet for IWC. Um, as at their For the Love of Film can event. So we went from Muddy Field, MotoGP, Monster Energy to Black Tie, Red Carpet, Can Film Festival event. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I, I would ask you, at what point did you get changed and were you in a hotel room or at the back of a, a parking lot? I think this one I did actually have a chance to use like a bathroom in the hotel. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a really quick quick change and I hope the photographs from that uh, IWC event never surface or I don't think I made them into any of them because it was not a good look oh I bet it was I bet I bet with what you were able to do (laughs) did you still have mud on you uh it was a long dress so you could not see mud (laughs) I normally ask my guests at each point tell me the moment that you realize that motorsport wasn't glamorous at all but I think probably before that well, I have a great one for this one. Okay. So back when I was at JMI, we were activating for LG Electronics and they ran a hospitality or two hospitality programs at every single race on the calendar. And we did a paddock club program and a grandstand program. And for the grandstand program, we provided a packed lunch for each one of the guests every day because I ran the budgets as well, I was quite cost conscious. And I was seeing what these five-star hotels were charging to do a packed lunch for a guest. We got to Silverstone. I was like, hang on a second. I got this. In order to be more budget efficient, I figured we could provide the packed lunch. So I remember going with two of my colleagues to the Sainsbury's in the middle of Milton Keynes. Each of us had a trolley. And us trying to do the math on, okay, we have 20 guests over three days and each one needs one orange 
Okay, the oranges come in packets of six. So how many packages do we need? Okay, Jaffa Cakes, we're going to put two in each box. And they come in packets of eight, loading up these shopping trolleys and then being like, okay, now what do we do? So pushing shopping trolleys from Sainsbury's across the hub in Milton Keynes back to our hotels into the lift and then getting them into our hotel rooms. And it was at that point that I was like, I don't think this was the greatest idea. But yeah, then having to sleep the rest of the weekend with all this packed lunch stuff around our beds. Definitely not glamorous. I remember doing, this is Jeremiah as well, the, the famous room drops. So getting things ready so that we could do room drops in each of our guests' hotel rooms so that they had something to welcome them into their room. And we'd be up until two o'clock in the morning getting these packages ready and then speaking to the hotel so that we could have someone come into their hotel rooms. And you couldn't do that now, could you? You definitely couldn't do that at the moment. I have never been into more people's hotel rooms because we. I got to a point where it's quite obsessive. And no matter how many times you explain to a hotel about how you want the room drop to be, it never is right. So we got to a point where the concierge would escort us into each guest's room. So we got a chance to go into all of the different rooms in all of the hotels and, um, you know, see who was living the best life, who had the best view, who had the best bathtub. This is always the one I was interested in. It's the perfect job for someone who's nosy about hotel rooms, definitely. I don't know if they still do that, actually. I think we'll have to ask someone, at, um, an agency, one of our agency friends to see if they still do room drops. I imagine under COVID circumstances, they probably don't. But yeah, I'm sure we'd have a few suggestions. Having said all of this and having explained your roles quite specifically now, what would you say is the biggest misconception about your job? What did people assume all the time? Well, obviously the glamour. But also that it's real. Your life is this fantastic life where you're going to all these amazing places and that you're going out to dinner with these clients and that you're that you actually are enjoying it or that it isn't still a job. I think probably one thing people might be surprised about specifically for me is that I'm actually quite a shy person and I'm quite introverted. So the fact that I was responsible for making sure that everybody was having a great time, it's kind of strange. My favorite thing to do is just be on my own with a book and quiet and not talk to anybody. So to have a job where my job was speak to everybody was strange. But that speaks to the fact that it isn't real. It's like putting on a show. It's like acting. Sometimes I like it, liken it to like being a stripper. <laughs> You know, everybody's in love with the stripper. They all want to date one. They all want to take one home because the stripper makes them feel so good when they're there. But it's just a job and it's a complete front. And that they're smiling and having a great time. And they turn around and they, you know, walk away and have their five minutes where they get to go back to being who they really are. And then they go back to putting on a show again. And I think sometimes my job was a little bit like that. Okay, then... <laughs> My next question was going to be, how did you define success for yourself within that realm? I think success for me was always getting through a race weekend where every single guest was happy or going back into the office on a Monday morning and having emails from partners saying what an incredible weekend they had had, what an impact it made on their customers or their clients, and what a difference it was making in their business. They were able to have conversations with the people that they had brought 
that they wouldn't have been able to have in any other environment. It made what we were doing feel important and worthwhile because when you're running around on a race weekend, and I remember countless times being in Monaco and running, coordinating a team of 10 or 15 people and constantly in my ear was, Rachel, how many people on this tender? When is the tender showing up here? Where are the passes? constantly being bombarded with questions that needed immediate answers that sometimes you get lost in the detail you get so wrapped up in the things that have gone wrong the tender that was late the person who didn't make it off the grid in time to see the start but those are the things that you focus on all the time it's so easy to find those mistakes so having the successes come from the happy partners and happy clients made it a little bit easier. But I could always tell in Monaco when things were going well, because there was always a period on Sunday morning where the radio went dead quiet because everybody was in the activities they were supposed to be doing. All of the guests were exactly where they were supposed to be and everything was happening. And that was the moment that I was like, yes, it has all worked because there was no question and no chat on the radio. I always say it's like a pit stop. You know when a pit stop's good because of the lack of sound, because it means that there's only one sound because everyone's doing the same thing at the same time. So um, I love that. No radio means good work. Did you ever look left and right at other teams and how they were doing? Were you ever competitive with what you were doing? So I always say in my family that I'm the competitive one and my brother is the talented one. 100%. I am hugely competitive. So I was always looking And in fact, it was something that Toto always would tell us is when you are tired, when you are stressed, when you're fatigued, when it's all too much, think of your opposite number at the other teams. And all you have to do is be better than that person, you know. And so there are individuals at 10 other teams that you're competing against, just you, one on one. I also remember at JMI and taking guests to McLaren's Paddock Club and always looking around and just thinking, wow, this is amazing. And um, speaking with Caroline Wyman, who was in charge of, of doing all of that and just thinking, one day if I could be the Caroline Wyman, I would love that. And how proud she was of all of the things that they were were doing, the design, the changes and things like that. And it was something that I always kept in my mind as I was working on our setup, how, how can we make it just a little bit better? Or everything that I had seen, how, how would I change that? How would I do it? How would I make it bigger or better or more exciting or different? So yeah, 100%, always. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I want to ask about how you were balancing your work life obviously against Formula One because we know it takes a lot of time. But I feel like we need a side bracket because you have left motorsport and you're doing something completely different whilst actually still working freelance for motorsport projects as and when they come up. I don't think it's fair to talk about work-life balance without explaining that you left the team to go do something completely different and that your life changed drastically as you did that as well. So tell us about that move. What happened? You decided that you handed in your notice. You you knew what you were doing. You already knew you were coming home. What was that point? What happened? Well, I think probably the biggest thing is I had no work-life balance and I was destroying myself and destroying my personal relationships. My health was suffering. I was thriving on the stress and addicted to the winning and the success and to, to the detriment of almost everything else in my life. And it, it meant that the highs were super high, but the lows were really, really low. And it was an unsustainable way of, of working. I had been in England, well, 14 years on this stint by the time I moved back to California. And it started to get harder and harder to go back to the UK. I remember standing in the middle of LAX airport going back after summer break, sobbing. And my parents were like, well, why are you doing this? Because it just got harder, harder and harder to leave California, harder and harder to leave my parents. And I had a good example of how life can be after F1 because my dad left uh, full-time Formula One, came back to California, did some design projects, (laughs) ended up going back to work for Dan Gurney, (laughs) but also started running our avocado ranch and continuing on the family legacy of farming. So my parents moved to the ranch in 2013 and it was just the place that I wanted to be. So we started having conversations probably two years out from when I actually handed in my notice about me coming to work for the family farm. And both dad and I were quite clear that It needed to be something that would work for both of us, that I would have a role 
that had defined responsibilities that I would deliver value because it's quite important well, in any business, but in specifically in a family farming business that fluctuates so much that rarely does a family a family farm support more than one generation. So if I was going to come to work for the ranch, I had to make it worthwhile. Dad put together a job description and an offer letter. And he passed me this, I think at Christmas, about nine months before I quit. And so I carried it around with me and I thought about it and... We kept talking about it. Uh, I went home for summer break and we talked about it some more and I signed the letter. And I said, but I just don't know when I'm going to start yet because I was on a six months notice. The day I quit, I really hadn't planned on doing it. But I was sitting in a meeting with my boss and there were some things that were going wrong. And she looked at me and she said, well, what do you actually even want to do? Do you want to be here? Do you want to, you know, how do you think you're going to be progressing? Where do you want to be going? And I said, well, you know what? Actually, (laughs) I quit. (laughs) And it was at that moment where I realized that I didn't want to be there. I couldn't see how I wanted to grow or progress or change. I had achieved everything I wanted to everything was running smoothly. I had was training my replacement, although that's not what she thought at the time. (laughs) But I knew it was the right moment where I could, I built it, I could hand it off, and I knew it would continue and be successful. So I stayed for my six months notice, did a full proper transition. And then it was 14 years minus one day that I moved back to California. And then yeah, started started to work on the ranch and it was a great change. But again, there is no work-life balance. Working for a family business, we had some things happen that completely altered our course. My parents now live next door to me. I go to work every day at their house. So, you know, we eat dinner together regularly. There's no work-life balance. It's just a lifestyle. In the same way that Formula One is a lifestyle. It's not a job. It's not a career. It's a lifestyle. Absolutely. I think in your case, is your quality of life more appropriate to where you are now? I feel like you were closing a chapter when you left motorsport. It had delivered everything it was supposed to for you and you were ready to change to a new chapter. Yeah, I would say it had definitely peaked. It was awesome. And I think I walked away at exactly the right time because I still miss it. I still love going back. I'm very grateful to have the opportunity usually once or twice a year to come back to the paddock um, and see everybody and remember what I loved about the sport, remember why I left and the things that were very challenging. So I walked away at the right time. Is my life balance better here? The first six months here were incredible. We would work in the office in the morning and then dad would say, okay, it's time to go farm. And so we would go out and just walk amongst the trees and look at how the fruit was growing, how the tree health was, soil health. And I just, I kept kept saying to him, I can't believe this is my job. My job is to walk through this avocado orchard. And he would just say yes, because without knowing what the trees are saying, stopping and listening, how can you know what you're supposed to do? We then had a pretty major setback and then 
it's been all hands on deck ever since, isn't it? Turning things back around. It has been. Yeah, we were burned pretty badly in the Thomas fire. My parents lost their house. We lost our barn, all of our farming equipment, and about 80% of the orchard was burned. So we have been flat out replanting, caring for baby trees, juggling everything financially, working on grants, disaster assistance programs, updating our infrastructure, working out of two shipping containers because we don't have a barn anymore. Yeah, planning for the future. So, I mean, you handled Formula One. You didn't think the next job was going to be easy, did you? I think that's one of the best things about life after Formula One is if you've done Formula One and you've been successful, you can pretty much do anything. You come in with a mindset that there's never no. It's always why not? Or how can I make it happen? Or like, that's not acceptable. We have to do better. You were talking about being competitive in Formula One, and it's something that I carry with me even now. Um, there's another family, and their goal is to be the biggest avocado farmer in our county. And I always say, well, that's that's great, but they can be the biggest. I'm going to be the best. So <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> Stepping back into the motorsport bubble for a moment, I wanted to ask you about highs and lows. You touched on it. Have you got a moment that you're proudest of? Did you get a chance to celebrate it? Because that's the other one that we're very bad at doing. I think one of my most special achievements was I actually delivered Michael Schumacher's final PR day with Mercedes. And it was going to be, regardless, a very complex day because it was on bikes um, with Monster Energy again and one of these awesome crossover events. And it was called, the, the concept was called Legends at Play. So it was John McGuinness from the TT. Keith Flint from The Prodigy, Paul Espargaro from MotoGP, Randy Mamola, a legend of MotoGP, and then Michael, all heading out to Paul Ricard, jumping on each other's bikes, cruising around and having a great day, which on the surface, you just think, wow, that would be brilliant. And how hard could that be to plan? But there were so many complexities that went into it. It was the week after the Brazilian Grand Prix after the season had finished. And I think it was on the Sunday morning of the race where we all got together and they were like, well, we have one more day left with Michael and uh, we think we should put it to Monster and do this excellent concept. So can you deliver it? Would be like next Friday. Yeah, just, it, I mean, it was intense. Getting Daimler's approval, specking out how we were going to make sure that it was team context what bikes were actually going to be able to be ridden, where we were going to be able to do it, how we were going to get a circuit hired, what journalists could be invited to come along. And it was very hard work in the lead up, both with Michael's management and with Daimler and with Monster, just pulling all of the pieces together. I think it's one of those things that the harder it is in the lead up to it, the smoother it goes on the event. Because if you put all the hard work in, you have all of those tough back and forth questions. You get all of the details ironed out. Then on the day, everyone can actually just relax and enjoy themselves because they know where the boundaries are. And I remember sitting on the pit, pit wall with Sabina, who was, was Michael's manager, both of us freezing because it was three degrees and looking at each other and being like, 
oh, we did it. <laughs> Here it is. It's all going smoothly. That was a pretty special day in a, in a lot of different ways. It sounds amazing. What an experience. And then I hate to ask, but I like to be fair. Do you have something on the other end of the spectrum where you thought this is not a good moment? And I assume you climbed up back out of it, but let me know how you recovered as well. There were a lot of low moments, but the thing about Formula One is it moves so quickly. You don't have time to celebrate the successes or dwell on the lows because they just come back. You know, the next thing comes on so quickly. I mean, they're definitely big mistakes that I made, like forgetting to ship the trophies out to go on the trophy wall in Singapore once. Yeah. Or having a whole bunch of gifts printed where the logo of the partner hadn't been correctly lifted and so one of the pieces was missing. I mean, there they, there are these things that stick in your mind. And at the time, you feel like it's the biggest disaster ever. But you find a way to fix them. And usually all it takes is money. And it's just <laughs> a scale of how much money, how bad is the problem, and how much would we have to throw at it to fix it. And then, of course, there are those dark days that we all have where we lose members of our own community. I remember being in Las Vegas at one of my brother's races when Dan Weldon was killed. And those are the moments I remember sitting in a broom closet with my brother and my dad. And my brother was just in tears because he was the car that Dan went over the back of. And Charlie just saying, my life wouldn't be worth living if I couldn't be doing this. And I know that Dan felt exactly the same way. And these are the moments that are the hardest because we all have to realize that we are being incredibly selfish, putting ourselves out there and doing it. But there would be no point. I wouldn't, my life wouldn't be worth living if I couldn't do this. And that was a moment where it was horrendous and awful. But I remember thinking like, how could me as his sister or anybody I love, how could you ever say to somebody you love, I don't want you to do that? So kind of giving ourselves permission to be a little bit selfish, to chase our dreams. I don't think I've ever told you this, but there's nothing I've ever hated doing with you more than watch your brother race. I remember, I think we were in Canada and we found a bar so that we could actually watch Charlie. I couldn't focus on the race. The entire time I was focused on he has to be safe because I'm I'm sitting next to his sister. I hate it. I really hate it. <laughs> Thanks. Um I mean, it's tough because that that race for sure was, uh, I mean, it's Texas, so it's an oval and it's always intense. And yeah, it is definitely, there's a sense of adrenaline that hits you. Um, there is a little bit of fear, but I trust my brother implicitly. I know that for sure he's a hell of a lot better out there doing it than I would be. Um, he's smart and so aware of everything that goes on in the car. And I know that all of the drivers, you, you don't get to the highest level, Formula One, IndyCar, without, without those skills. So yeah, I mean, it's not easy, but it certainly ramps up the intensity a little bit. Yeah, exactly. You feel like you've got a bigger stake in the game. I mean, I always feel very intense when I'm watching my team race, but I have a job to do during those races. So actually I'm focused on the job and I don't have so much time to dwell on on my personal feelings. But yeah, when I'm watching your brother race, I'm just watching the race. And and then all I think about is, is the fact that I have a stake in it. You're my friend and, and he's your brother. I'd like to ask you about your love of motorsport. Having done everything that you've 
done having still your family involved in it you still involved in projects as and when they they come up I think you still uh you I've seen you at Monaco you've done things with Monster ever since leaving so you're you're still a little bit in there what do you still love about it the thing I love most about motorsport and it will never change is that no matter who you are there is a facet to racing that will appeal to you um, for me, it's the psychology side of things, the the mind games amongst the drivers, the, you know, psyching each other out, what it takes to actually mentally be a champion. I watched Nico change fundamentally who he was to beat Lewis. Um, and I completely appreciate him turning around and retiring at the end of that year because what it took is superhuman but if you're into technology then for sure you can fall in love with it if you're into um, sports fitness or the the mental psychology thing is the one that's big for me but I defy you to say that anybody could come to a race and not find something that they could fall in love with some aspect of formula one I could pretty much turn anybody into a fan because there is something that would pique their interest. One of my favourite moments is have someone that's new, that's discovering the sport, that's not convinced, spend a weekend with a team and leave completely hooked. And actually, if they're lucky enough to come back again and again to see that passion grow under your eyes as they're discovering the sport through what you're showing them, it's a gift. Yeah, 100%. And you're right, it's always something different. They always find something that answers to them completely. Uh, and it might not be what you thought. We used to take bets as to be, okay, at what point are we going to see the the sparkle go up, go up in the eye? You know, they've seen something they love. Definitely. Tell me about stress. We've already said that the work-life balance was awful. We already said that you pushed yourself too hard uh, in a bid to achieve everything that you wanted to achieve. And I think that came from your team culture as well. It, it spoke to you. I think the Mercedes is a very driven team that wants to do better and better every time. And I think that comes from its people. Did that ensue stress and how did you cope with it? I think I'm the kind of person that actually thrives on stress. I'm a horrendous procrastinator. I would rather take an exam than write any kind of paper. Um, so the sort of last minute deadline driven culture suited me really well. The more pressure I was under, the better I was able to perform. I hated the off season where I was like, you've got three months to get ready to go testing. So for the first two and a half months, it didn't really do very much. And then I was like, okay, two weeks, let's go. <laughs> which is awful to say, to admit, but I couldn't do it otherwise. So thriving under pressure was the only way that I could really be effective. Could I have done a much better job if I had taken a lot more time and gone through things more slowly and more methodically? Probably. Would I have enjoyed it as much or would it have suited me? Definitely not. Which is very strange then when you think about what I do now, where it takes 18 months to grow an avocado. Um, and how slow farming is in relation to how fast F1 is. But it's actually not true because the trees are changing every single day on the ranch. And you can screw up today and not know about it for six months. So it's so critical to get everything right every single day. 
That's amazing. And then how do you relax? Having having to deal with, you know, you're carrying stress now that has a, a much longer impact. I suppose the stress that you'd have in Formula One, you'd see the impact of it straight away. I mean, the decisions you were making, at least it's quite instantaneous. Whereas now you're right, the, the decisions you're making now have an impact much later, but you, it doesn't stop you thinking about it and having to wait to see what's going to happen. So with all of that, how do you relax? Is it is it a book somewhere in your house, chilled out? Would you believe it's just walking through the orchard? On those days where I'm sat at the desk and I can just feel my blood pressure rising and it all feels too much, the very best thing to do is just get out and walk through the trees and hear the birds chirping and just the wind rustling the leaves, looking at the, you know, the color of the leaves, how healthy the trees are, seeing the fruit dazzling in the sunlight, and just realizing that fundamentally it's quite important. We're growing food for people. We're growing something that people love, that tastes good, that's healthy, and it's very calming. Your voice is calming. Thanks. <laughs> Can you keep talking, please? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's funny because um, I had one former colleague who, when I saw them at a race recently, just said to me, oh, my God, you sound so American. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, funnily enough, it's because I am. He was like, no, 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 no. Now, now you just sound so American. <laughs> but everybody here thinks that I still have um, a lot of British intonation and pronunciation. I have that. Don't worry. I'm a French person in England and I'm an English person in France. So, eh. I'd like to address the people that are listening to the podcast. Hopefully there's a few people that are listening because I'd actually like to work in motorsport one day. And many of the things that you've said today will be a great source of inspiration, but I'd also like to mine you for advice on their behalf. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is, is there a piece of advice that you were given whilst you were working in motorsport or trying to work in motorsport that stuck out and that served you well through your 14 years in Europe? Do what you love. Find something that you truly love because then you'll be successful at it. It was something that my dad has always said. Um, don't fake it. Don't try to do a job because you think it looks good or you're going to get to travel the world. Be authentic, be genuine, be passionate about what it is you want to do and figure out where you would fit and what value you could add. Because I think a lot of people just think, oh, I want to work in F1. Right. Okay. But what do you actually want to do? Because, oh, I, I want to work in hospitality. Okay, D do you really want to put like 100 caps and 100 gift bags 25 times a year? Do you really want to be packing tickets until midnight in a hotel room? Because that's, that's what the job is. But if every time you put a ticket in a box, you think this is going to go around the neck of somebody who is coming to the track and they are depending on me to make sure they have an amazing day. And so you take, you pack it with a little more care and then you see that person wearing that ticket. And then when they leave at the end of the day and you hand them the gift bag that you carefully put the hat cap in and the other gifts and you see their face light up and you think, okay, yeah, that I've done my job, but don't do it because you just think like, Oh, I want to go and drink champagne on a roof terrace in Monaco because that's like one tiny percent of the job. 
that will get you in for five minutes. It's not going to get you in for a few years, isn't it? And and that's exactly the thing. I know a lot of people recognized my name because of my dad. I had my first partner manager said to me, oh, yeah, you're the second Kimball I've worked with here at McLaren. And I think one of your other guests said it too. Yeah, that might get you through the door, but it's what you do after you get there. And it's almost like the reputation puts more pressure on your shoulders because people expect that you you know how to behave. You know what the responsibility is. You know that you're supposed to respect everybody in that environment. So you have to live up to these expectations and you have to deliver. Otherwise, you're out. I can't believe I'm asking you the last question. I'm almost sad to do it. But Rachel, what are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to coming back and seeing all of you guys. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of the best things about the life that I have now because I do get to just dip in and dip out. And the amount of times I see jobs come up and I think, oh, I would love to do that. And seeing all of the changes that are being made within F1 and how different the teams are now. And yeah, I want to come back and, and see all the new things you guys are doing. And then I want to hear your feedback because I know we'll be able to do it better after you've looked at it. (laughs) Well, you know, the day you do it and there's no more room to improve, then that's the day that you can go home happy. Wise words. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much for giving up your time. I don't even know what time it is where you are, actually. I think it's like 10 o'clock in the morning in America. Yep, it is. So thank you so much for giving up your morning to chat to me. I really appreciate it. Me too. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Orly. Thank you to my lovely friend, Rachel, for taking part. I'm so happy she could come on and share her story. And I love her beautiful accent so much. I could listen to her talk all day. I hope you enjoyed it too. You can check out Rachel's Avocado Ranch on social media. They're at Kimball Avocados, all in one word, on Instagram. I'd like to thank the producer of this show, Press Play Productions. The awesome Tabitha is the one who turns our brilliant chats into the very nicely edited podcast you listen to each week. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe via your favourite podcast platform. Leave a review if you can, tell your friends, post about it on social media. It all works and it all helps, so thank you. And as I've mentioned before, I read every message and every mention and it means an awful lot. Uh, You can also get in touch directly with me if you'd like to via my Instagram account, which is Pandea, P-A-N-D-E-A. And there's also a link in the show notes via which you can support the podcast directly should you wish to. Thank you very much for listening and speak to you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.